Section 7. Be yourself. Yikes! That show was bad. Audacity. More audacity and always audacity. Georges-Jacques Danton. When I have a bad show, it bothers me long after I've left the stage. Of course, I also remember some of the good sets, the times that Kismet has smiled down upon me and my fellow performers, anointing us with the genius stick as we've flowed from laugh to gasp and back to laugh through a series of interconnected moments of sublime perfection. That warm glow lasts a while, but the stink of a bad show lasts much longer. This is due to something called the negativity bias, or negativity effect. Negativity bias asserts that we remember negative experiences much more easily than positive ones, or we mentally assign negative experiences more weight than positive ones. So you can recall those missed flights, workplace disappointments, and fights with your partner much more easily than you can call to mind the thousand little wonderful moments of your daily life. And the iffy shows and our embarrassing onstage miscues spring to mind more easily than those nights we were actually pretty good. Many years ago, while I was living in Rome, I went back to Vancouver to visit. Shortly after arriving, I guested with my friends at the Sunday service and had a lights-out show. It was a triumphal return. Then, before I flew back to Rome a few weeks later, I sat in with them again. I did it even though I was hungover, tired, and had plans to watch a hockey game. Bad call, Ryan. Bad call. The show was awful. Or more specifically, I was awful. Awkward, slow-witted, uninspired. The antithesis of the show just a couple weeks earlier. The worst part is, thanks to the negativity bias, I generally don't even recall that first glorious, wonderful show. I just remember the awful one a few weeks later. Footnote 4. In, f in fact... I'd totally forgotten about the super fun show until I was writing this section, and then I was like, oh yeah, it wasn't just that really, really bad show. I actually did a good one a few weeks before. Thanks a lot, negativity bias. Some performers claim that the moment they walk off stage, that last set, good or bad, is gone. I'm a little jealous of them, but I also feel bad that they lose out on the joy of remembering good shows and the lessons that come from recalling the poor ones. The successes keep us coming back, and the low lights inspire us to keep practicing. The point is, improv is inherently risky. Sometimes our onstage choices fall flat, or a scene never really finds its feet. The fact that these come more easily to mind can skew your own impression of your success and ability towards the I suck side of the scale. But that's not the objective reality, that's just our old friend negativity bias. Remember that the next time you feel like you had a stinker of a show. And next time you have a great show, make a point of savoring that feeling and mentally replaying those highlights, just to balance things out a little. But regardless of whether the show was explosively hilarious or a sneak out the back without even saying hi to your friends who came to see you bomb, you should also bear the following in mind. No matter how it went, you're going to remember the show in a lot more detail and for a lot longer than your audience, because it means a lot more to you than it does to them. In fact, they don't really care that much one way or the other. I mean, of course, they do. They're your friends. But it's not nearly as important to them as it is to you. So don't get too low off the lows, nor, for that matter, should you get too high off the highs. Don't worry. Focus out. We never do anything well until we cease to think about the manner of doing it. William Hazlitt. 
In one of my first improv workshops with Keith Johnstone, which was a pretty good place to start, I heard some excellent and oft-repeated advice. Make sure your partner is having a good time. That is your job. It's your only job. It's a useful way to frame an improv scene because it takes the pressure off you. It allows you to take an attitude of delighted curiosity onto the stage and encourages you to play your scenes with selfless and joyful abandon. That attitude of focusing on your partner and not worrying about your own shit frees you up to just play, to take it easy, if you will. But there's an important clarification here. You're not actually responsible for making sure your partner is having a good time. That's something you can't control. You can only contribute to the possibility of them having a great time by doing things that seem fun for you and, to the best of your judgment, for your partner. If all is going well, they're doing the same thing. But in actual fact, both of you are entirely responsible for your own happiness. So if you're out there giving your all for your partner and they're not giving you much in return, it doesn't matter. If you're bummed out afterward and blame them, I'm sorry to say, that blame is misplaced. You're in charge of your own good time. So if you have a bad show, it's not your partner's fault, it's yours. Looking after yourself and making sure your partner is having a good time are not mutually exclusive goals. In fact, they support one another. You give without any need for anything else in return, and that gives you confidence. It frees you up from checking in on your own performance so you can just let go and play. By focusing outside, you decrease the chances of overthinking. And that is a gift. Boo-hoo on your own time. You cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. Greg McCune. Let's say you had a real bad show. It probably happens rarely because you're great. Sometimes, though, it just didn't work. Maybe you personally sucked or maybe the group collectively dropped the ball, but let's say that you particularly and specifically had a terrible show. You were in your head, you missed some big offers, you hit some bum notes, and both the audience and your team seemed less than impressed with you. Whatever. What can you do? Carry on until the end of the show doing your damned best. Keep going, come what may. My Millican rap counterpart, Trent Pansy, puts it this way. We don't celebrate our successes on stage just as we don't point out our failures. So leave all of those responses until after the show. Then when you get off stage, raise your hand and say, oh, blah, That sucked. I'm an unlovable garbage person. I should quit improv. Blah. Just say it quickly and quietly in the bathroom mirror or out behind the theater to yourself and then be done with it. If you need to say something to a cast member or your director, do so and be done with it. Spare them the self-flagellation. And especially, don't do it in front of an audience member. Double especially if they thought you had a great show. If they enjoyed it, don't contradict them. Let them have it. And if you suspect they're just being polite by paying you a compliment, just offer a simple, thank you for saying that. And then, <sighs> exhale. Shake it off. Let it go. Don't help the negativity bias out by focusing on the negative. The negativity bias will do just fine without your help. In general, stew a little and shed a lot. Everyone except you will forget about your off moments either within an hour or a day because when all's said and done, it, it isn't about you. So just do what you can and let the rest go. Balancing the commercial and artistic. Good things happen to those who hustle. Anas Nin. I don't think I pronounced that right. 
Anais Nin? Nonetheless, we're moving on. Though it seems to be changing, in my experience, paid improv gigs are not the most artistically rewarding occasions for you to perform at. A gig at a company Christmas party or your parents' wedding anniversary? Well, there's a good possibility that the set list and content you'll be performing that evening won't be your favorite type of improv. When I moved to Amsterdam in 2003 and got a job doing corporate shows with Boom Chicago, it was pretty great at first. And then there were periods when it felt less like I'd achieved something amazing. Sure, I was performing improv for a living with top-quality players while living in Europe, but still, at times it didn't feel like the pinnacle of my performer dreams. But then, of course, came the paychecks to keep me in noodles, chowda, uh, and cheap beer for my year living abroad. In fact, that job was what allowed me to actually make it by that year. And it really sharpened my improv skills. So who cares that the set lists were often quite similar and that I wasn't always artistically pushing myself, because that wasn't the point. And it's not just improv. Most any time that I get paid for something creative, writing, acting, or improv, it's not the purest artistic expression of my craft, but rather a way to put those skills to work for someone else and for some cash. But it's always been that way. Filmmakers need to balance their sensibility with what studios want and what audiences will go see. Painters need to, well, back in the day, painters needed to paint portraits of patrons to make that a career. And musicians can develop their craft in secret, but often need to make artistic compromises to reach a wider audience. Not all the time, of course, but often enough. And that's the nature of art versus commerce. It's been going on for a long time and is far from something unique to improv. So definitely find your own voice, do your own thing, but don't turn your nose up at paid work. Or alternately, if you decide to decline those Christmas parties and corporate team-building workshops or other paid gigs in order to pursue your own unique artistic vision, that's great. Good on you for the purity of your dedication and so forth. And if you're one of the ones who makes a living for doing their own unique and artistically progressive brand of improv, I congratulate you. But don't forget that everyone has different circumstances and sensibilities, and be careful not to scorn those who make different choices to you. They might have a very good reason for choosing a different path. For instance, they might really need to get paid, or they might just really love teaching zip-zap-zop to marketing professionals. Whatever it is, let it be. Skin in the game. Every good painter paints what he is. Jackson Pollock. The quickest way to get an audience to care for you is for you yourself to care. If you're invested in what's happening from the start, the audience will pick up on that and be more invested. If you're not, it gives them permission to fold their arms, lean back, and shake their heads. Improv is not a slick and polished art form. Even when it's performed at a top-notch level, there are some moments when the audience can share in the fact that it's being made up on the fly. It might be genuine surprise on the face of a player, a quirky diversion from the narrative, or some good-natured messing with one another. These elements can initially seem like a muddle, but one of improv's greatest assets is the ability to take that ramshackle element or quirk and roll it into the overall piece. That weird choice you made, to have your character fixated on snow tires, for example, seemed really tangential and unimportant until the end of the piece when he's able to rescue everyone from the snowbound cabin, say. That tiny detail which exposed some genuine emotion at the beginning of the show, is seamlessly incorporated, and it helps the piece achieve a higher level. Basically, it looks great. It looks like good writing. 
However, this isn't about whether it looks good or not. This is about whether you're really in it or not. Improv isn't about saying funny things. It's about spontaneously creating a shared reality. It's theater without a script. And it's often funny, but as a byproduct of the creation process. The more real it is, the better. Another popular workshop I have is called Get Real. Its goal is to help performers get at something that I think is vital, reality, or authenticity. Some might simply refer to it as good acting. Regardless of what you call it, when it's missing, it's noticeable. A lack of reality, or commitment, or vulnerability is one of my biggest turnoffs in improv and performance, and people in general. Real doesn't mean kitchen sink grittiness, nor does it advocate for mundane situations or a lack of character work. Real, in this case, just means that there needs to be some element of the performer visible and sensible to the audience. There needs to be some skin in the game. Audiences want to see some aspect of humanity on stage, and the easiest way to show that is by bearing a little bit of your soul. Of course, they want that mixed in with talent, experience, passion, polish, wit, and lyricism, among other things, but they also quite definitely want people who sh to show some measure of who they are. It's a compelling relationship between the heart and the brain on stage. People want to laugh. They want the performers to be witty and the situations full of humor, but they also want to care about the characters and feel there's some personal investment on the part of the performers. If not, it can still be funny, but it will seldom, if ever, be anything more. Accounting for taste. When performers attempt to connect with an audience with confidence and consideration, they will almost always succeed. Sincerity is a greatly underrated attribute in an improviser. The ideal default attitude of a player towards their audience is along the lines of, I'm glad you're here. What I'm about to do or what I'm doing is something I'm excited about, I'm proud of, and I want you to like it too. I'm going to enjoy myself up here, and I invite you along for the journey. If any of those sentiments don't apply to the performance you're doing or the audience you're doing it for, you're in trouble. You want your audience to connect with your characters, whether it's with love, hate, admiration, or pity. In fact, it doesn't matter as long as the people watching care about the characters and the actors. And that only happens when you, the performer, start caring. Be yourself. Be different. Play well or play badly, but play truly. Konstantin Stanislavski. In improv, there are roughly two kinds of people, those who drift towards playing characters and those who more or less perform as themselves. Of course, quite often when starting, improvisers will be very much themselves on stage, perhaps with a slightly different aspect, like they're a boat captain or married. But over time, players tend to move down one of the two paths. Some people gravitate towards characters and amass and hone a selection of accents, physicalities, and so forth. Others naturally settle into playing versions of themselves. I'm the second type. I like playing characters who are very similar to me, only louder. Character players tend to have big physicalities and a greater vocal range. They can be a stiff-lipped English polo enthusiast in one scene and an inappropriately goofy funeral director in another. The self-player may do the same roles in the same scenes, but we see the player much more sharply than the character. Neither is the better way to improvise, but it's worth your effort to develop in the area you're lacking in. If you're great with characters, but rarely play yourself on stage, 
there's a good chance you're hiding behind your characters and it's impeding your development as an improviser. So give yourself the challenge of stepping out from behind those characters now and again. Give yourself more space to be yourself. On the other hand, if you're always yourself on stage, it can be very samey, and the risk level is low. It's effective for some stand-up comedians and university lecturers, but in improv, we're creating realities from nothing. And if every single reality you create has you as the main character, it gets boring. No offense intended, I know you're a really interesting person, but you need to start making some more divergent character choices on stage. You need to build up that character muscle. Practice this in rehearsal by making small character choices. Walk slowly, enter a scene happy, or speak nasally, and keep it for a whole scene, even a whole show. In addition to being enjoyable for the audience and giving your scene partners more to play with, subtle alterations can give you new insights or angles into the characters you play. Flexing a greater authenticity and a greater character range will both start to pay dividends, especially as they begin to influence one another. You'll find your big characters acquiring more depth and nuance, and the self-character developing more variation. End of section.